Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Well, good morning, C4 family. Uh, Good to see you this morning. Glad that you made it through our first winter in February. And uh, uh, good morning to you, our online audience. If you don't know what we're talking about and you live in Texas or something, don't worry about it. We had to shovel this morning. Just want to say before I get going today, a reminder, uh, since we've done this huge shift in our church, that at every single door, I'll be like a flight attendant this morning, um, you have your connect group questions or your follow-up questions to the message. And so if you want to take a moment, even while I start preaching, to stand up and grab one of those, that's fine. And we want to just make it our culture that every day, every week when we come in, we grab our questions connected to the sermon so we can keep talking and getting more rooted in the scripture, both individually and a community. And for you online listening, I want to remind you too, this is on our website under the media section, and you can download those as a PDF every single week, and uh, so I want to give that to you. So on Friday of this week, my wife and I uh, moved to our, our new home, and uh, this was quite a move for us. Joanna and I were married uh, just over 12 years ago in 2000, and uh, we got the home we've been in uh, two days before we were married, so we've never done the move before. And so we did the move, we did it in nine and a half hours. And, uh, oh, that's right. Uh, but we paid people, so it's fine. And, uh, and uh, sort of we, we did the move. Now, anyone who's done a move realizes there's sort of three phases. It's, um, at least that's my experience. There's, first of all, the realization that you probably need to. And that produces joy and terror. And then there's the packing. And I want to thank some people here that came and helped us pack. And then there's the day. And I, I, tw- I Twittered this this week. If there's anything that produces the fruit of the Holy Spirit in a Christian, it's when you move. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience. Uh, it's it's quite, quite an experience. And, uh, and so we, we got in, and at the end, of course, now we're, in this case, in a much better place, a much more exciting place, uh, and it's an amazing thing. And I was thinking about the move and thinking about what we're about to talk about as a family this morning, because as I reflected on the passage, it has the same rhythm, where what we're about to hear will produce great joy and trepidation. If we actually obey what the scriptures tell us to do through today's sermon, it will be, well, a little painful. But the end result will be something much more significant than where we are right now. There will be freedom for many of us. There will be, I'm telling you, freedom for many of us. And so listen closely today. Because where Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, chooses to take that church and our church is a significant, life-changing event. So today, we're going to ask ourselves the question, in our own hearts, do we even want to move? And we'll see what the response is within the next few weeks. Basically, this is a call to live in an upside-down way. Let me say it this way. Welcome to the greatest countercultural revolution in history. Revolution, of course, takes place in the heart, which brings more change than money, power, politics, personality, knowledge, education, psychology, or military might. What he is about to teach us and that God is going to teach us today is stronger than any psychology, any philosophy, any science, stronger than any invention or any technological advancement. Why? Because what Paul is about to challenge us with, what God is about to say to us, actually changes the nature of our thinking and our heart, which changes how we act with one another. And of course, we realize when the heart gets changed, everything changes because we govern from where we think and where we are. Today is week four in our series out of the book of Philippians. 
The theme this year, like we've said all the time, is joy. And we felt compelled to walk through this most joy-filled book of the New Testament. Now, not only does it stand out as a powerful example of what could be, but actually what must be among us here at C4 Church. But where this book goes is most important because it forces us to have a rooted faith. We see in this letter that joy and suffering are experienced at the same time. That is a contradiction in the world's terms, but for we who are now reconnected to God through Jesus, it's not. What was lost in Eden has now come in part back into our hearts. God now walks with us, first, of course, through the life of Jesus, and now through the Spirit of Christ Jesus. And as we've learned, we're not called to live under our circumstances of suffering, but nor are we called to live above them like so many teach us. We are called to walk in them, empowered by the Spirit of Christ Jesus day by day. We may not live under or be in bondage to our sufferings, but nor may we avoid our sufferings as Christians whether fear, worry, stress, or darkness, we are called to walk with Jesus through them. And so as we face suffering for Jesus, that is as we've been learning, as we face suffering because we love Jesus and we hold out truth, and also as we face suffering physically, emotionally, mentally, sexually, financially, or relationally, because we live in a broken world and because of our own sin and the sins of others, We must come back to the only one that can produce unnatural joy in any circumstance. I love the truth of Jesus and his spirit when one penned it this way. All other great examples may inspire us, but they cannot enable us. They may motivate us, but they have no power to change us. And that is exactly what Paul's point is as he gives now a new call and challenges us and says, are you ready to move or do you want to stay in something that no longer is working? See, in chapter 2 in Philippians, in the middle part, he's going to reinforce the idea that only Jesus and his spirit can change us. But before we get in there, let me go back and read from God's most holy word from last week. This is the bridge that's going to make everything clear as we get going today. So if you've got your Bible, electronic or physical, Philippians 2, uh, verse 5 is where we'll begin. And this is what Paul said in the grand way. In your relationships with one another, Christians, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Good, we got two amens this week, a few more. Amen. This is awesome. So with that grand cry, now our journey begins in verse 12 with one little word. Therefore, Paul says, since you have my example, and since you have Jesus' example, and since now you've been given the promised Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, apply. Now become, now embrace your calling, your purpose for being. Become the shining example of not only what could be, but what must be and will be. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. He says, look, 
Dear friends, my beloved, Paul is talking to Christians here, which is going to be very important in the next verse. He says, as you have already obeyed, he says, look, I've got such affection for you. As a church, you've been faithful to Jesus. You've actually done the gospel. I give you an A plus on your report card. I just want to say thank you to you. I'm sending you a valentine. Keep going. But Paul is about to go farther than that. Now, Paul did not expect, by the way, his churches to obey his personal wishes. He expected them to obey the gospel, witness tradition handed down to them. He expected churches that he had oversight to look to him as an example, and he had no problem saying, look at me and imitate me. He wasn't being a jerk, and he wasn't being prideful, because he roots what he's calling them to back in Jesus in the scriptures. This is what he said to another church in the Corinth, to the Corinth church, 1 Corinthians 4, 17. For this reason, I've sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ, Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. He says, I want you to follow my example because I'm walking after Jesus and I am your leader and so let's all do this together. But then he does something. He does these famous, he pens these famous, controversial, much, much needed words. And if they're rightly stood, even among us this morning, they will produce a faithfulness and a joy that we have not had. He would simply to say to every one of us as Christians these words in verse 12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Now, work out comes from the image of mining a mine or working a field which have unbelievable results if you're faithful. But here's the question. Lean in, everyone. We all need to get this one so we don't go off the rails. Is this saying that if I and God get together, I get salvation by my works and God works together? The answer is no. We are not talking about God and us working together to get relationship. We know that we get relationship with God because he calls us, he saves us. It's grace alone, faith alone, through Jesus' work alone. Odell read right out of the scriptures this morning, another truth like that. We read it a few weeks ago, Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ Jesus, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. Salvation is granted to us. It is never earned. So then the question is, what does this mean? Because this verse has produced terrible results in two ways. Many people have taken this and thought, well, I need to earn my salvation with God, and they've bought into religion. Whole other groups of people have lived their whole Christian life feeling that they're terrible and nothing and, well, basically a worm, and they interpret this verse as that. What is he saying to us? Because this is a significant thing if we're serious about joy in our church. Well, one person theologically, first of all, gives some clarity when he said, we need to grasp the difference between Paul's use of the term salvation and another term he uses in the Bible called justification to understand the statement. The two terms are not synonymous. When Paul uses the term justification, which means just or justify, he's referring to this, that by God's work alone, we become innocent before him. By God's work alone, there is now no hostility between us and the living God. When we get justified, we are made right. And who does that? Jesus alone, by his work alone, and God's calling alone. That's what Paul means about justification. And interesting, if you read your Bible carefully, usually Paul uses that in the past tense. 
1 Corinthians 6, 6, 11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Or in Romans 5, 1, since you have been justified through faith. The state of innocence before God is only done by God through the work of Jesus. So if you're a Christian here this morning or online, at this very moment, God the Father looks at you completely innocent. Do you know that? You are without sin to his eyes because he looks at Jesus and then he looks at you. Jesus is the best lawyer, the best Brita filter system, however it helps you understand it. You're innocent. Not because you are innocent, but because Jesus has made us innocent. We are justified. Then that brings home the idea, well, then what does this mean? What this is saying is we now need to walk in our salvation that's already been given. He does not mean work it out. He means now walk in it, conduct yourself, live out one's faith. And how do you do this? With fear and trembling. We are called to live our life before the living Jesus with awe and respect and reverence and joy. And yes, something we need to recover here, some real trembling. Why? Because Jesus, by the way, is coming back for real. We are actually going to face him for real. Our right living, according to scripture, is always connected to the idea that we are going to face the one we love and loved us first. And his coming is imminent. His coming is imminent. It could happen at any time. Like I asked the congregation a few weeks ago, what would you do differently today if Jesus was coming back at seven tonight? Ask yourself the question. What would change in your life? What would you repent of? Who would you go reconcile with? What would you give away to the poor? Who would you go tell about Jesus? And the point of scripture is this. We are called to live like that every single day. Why? Because scripture says Jesus is coming. We don't know the hour and we are going to give an account. This is not myth. It's not a good idea. It's not pie in the sky. Jesus is coming back. And though Jesus is our brother and our friend, I remind you, church, he is God almighty. He's the Holy One. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. Every knee will bow in front of Him. And though we know Him and we know His love, we also should tremble every once in a while because He is Creator. And guess what? We're just created. That is the heartbeat of ethics for Christians. If we disconnect from our life the idea that Jesus is really returning, and many of us live as Christian atheists, think about it. We believe it all, we just don't think it's going to happen. If we live that way, we will never fear him, we will never tremble, and we will never have power. The impetus for living a holy life will be removed, and we will just walk through life and do church, and there will be very little change. Why? Because we really, at our heart, don't believe we're going to give an account. Now, this is interesting, because then Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and then he does something I'd never caught before. He ties it to church unity. He basically has already told us, avoid selfish ambition that leads to dissension. This is about obedience. And then he says, and this matters for your unity. Now, I asked myself the question this week, why does Paul in the book of Philippians keep talking about local church unity? In other words, all of us getting along with one another. Well, it's interesting. In the book of Philippians, we're going to find out in chapter 4, there's a problem. There are two women that are splitting the church. You can look at it, Philippians 4, 2. Now, he is addressing them. I'm not going to try to say their names. I meant to listen online, and I couldn't because I moved. Yudia and someone. And she says, I plead with you, ladies, 
to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause for the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, don't miss this. This is important for all of us. You two online, listen. These people are Christians. All these people's names are in the book of life. These two women who don't like each other and arguing with each other, they are co-workers with Paul and helped him advance the gospel. This is no minor issue, though. It actually posed a threat to the whole community. I mean, Paul is so concerned about this, he writes it down in Holy Scripture. Have you ever thought about this? 2,000 years later, we're reading their names because they had a church fight in the fellowship hall. This is serious. And he says, look, and he just says, an unnamed friend, you've got to help these women reconcile. Paul's saying, ladies, work out your stuff. Why? And here's the, here it is. Because you lack fear. You do not tremble. You do not believe, ladies, that what you're doing in the local church, you're going to have, a get, you're going to, have a, to give an account for on Judgment Day. You would be so slow to speak if you realized That one day, what you think is insignificant or your right to fight about something in church, you're actually going to have to talk to the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the Philippian church. Paul ties fear and trembling with church unity. And this is how he does it. Verse 13. It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. This solves two problems. God saves us. It's not our work. We get that. But there's more. Paul drives home the idea that he works in us. In other words, he's going to have to supply the power for all of us to get along with one another so actually we can fear and tremble him, tremble before him correctly. The word work comes from the idea of power. The idea of power in the New Testament is always connected to one person, the Holy Spirit. As we've learned week after week, one interesting thing in the book of Philippians, the unity of the local church is always connected to the Holy Spirit. Chapter 1, verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know you stand firm in the one spirit. It's talking about persecution. Uh, Internal issues. Chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if you have any tenderness, compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one spirit and of one mind. Now notice, our unity as a local church, when we give out the gospel, our unity when the community is under attack for loving Jesus, and when our internal unity is being threatened, Paul says one person can solve it, and it's not you. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ Jesus. He is the one that gives us something we can't produce. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He's the one who convicts us of sin when we think we're even right. He breaks us. He makes us like the one that sent him. The Holy Spirit is our glue. He's our lifeblood. He's our glasses. He's the one who empowers us. And like I said last week, if you want to be changed and you want to see C4 Church change, ask the Holy Spirit to change you. Change your mind, your thinking, your attitude, your worldview, the way you think about other people. And trust me, he will, because his only job assignment on earth is to convict people of sin and make people like the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul says very clearly, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. By the way, don't sweat it. I'm going to give you the power source to do something you can't. I'll supply it. 
And then Paul gets to the heart of the unity issue. He switches from this grand general thing to the call. And here's one of these verses again that should make all of us go, oh no, really? It's in there? Verse 14, there is no escape clause with this, by the way. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Go in peace. God bless you. We're done. (laughs) Think about that. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. And remember, he's writing to a local church. Now, this is an exact quote from the desert wanderings where the Israelites were complaining against Moses, their leader. And he turned and said, you're venting at me. You wanted it in Egypt. I was told to do this. Now you're angry at me. I'm just telling you, your beef isn't with me. It's actually with God. I'm just obeying God and trying to lead you. But you keep fighting me. Just stop it. Now, there's two huge implications out of these six little words. Catch them. The first one is this, and we take it for granted because we don't think about this very much anymore, but we should. The very first thing, we never catch this when we read this because we go right to the command. His point here is this. The Philippians were not Jews. I don't know if you knew this. That whole church was probably made up of completely non-Jews. And he was saying to them, by quoting this experience out of Moses, by the way, you are God's people now. They are the new Israel. The God's people are made up of Jews and non-Jews, bound in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Unity is based not on race anymore or religion, but on Jesus. Now this brings out something else we should just say, because we need to say it. We cannot ignore the Old Testament. It's no lesser than the New Testament. It's valid. It's inspired. It's the Word of God. I love when Doug Doug Hill was an elder here. He'd get really riled. It was great to see. Holy discontent. When he'd hear people say, we're New New Testament Christians, he'd be like, oh, no. We're Christians. We're Bible reading, Bible following, Bible loving, Bible Christians. That's it. Bible. Genesis to Revelation. And the point is, as Paul is trying to teach this non-Jewish church their identity, he says, right out of quoting the Old Testament, number one, you are part of us. But number two, learn now from the mistakes of your newly acquired spiritual ancestors. Paul is saying, look, when God's people murmured against God, things went really bad. Like earth opened up, swallowed people, salt piles, all sorts of... Don't go there. One person put it this way, the Philippians, as a local church, should in fear and trembling before Jesus, not presume on their salvation so much, but instead begin to take measures to quell dissension in their midst. He says, no grumbling and no arguing. Now, what would church feel like, friends, if these things weren't around C4 Church? I was reading Chuck Swindoll this week because he does so well on the joy theme And and I love, I read something that he preached, so I'm just going to steal it, but I'm publicly acknowledging it, so I'm not breaking the Ten Commandments. So here it goes. No, seriously. Okay. He says, watch your attitude. A bad attitude reveals itself from two sides. Things we do alone, grumbling, and things we do in public, arguing and disputing. Both of these joy stealers need to be exposed in every church. He says, what exactly is grumbling? Well, here it is. He says, it's not loud, it's not boisterous. Rather, it's a low-tone, discontented muttering. It's negative, it's muted comments, it's complaining, it's whining. Is that you? He says, disputing or arguing, however, is very different. It's vocal, it's ill-natured argumentation. It's any verbal expression. How good it looks or not does not matter. It's verbal expressions of disagreement in the church that stir up, ready, here's the categories, suspicion, 
distrust, doubt, and disturbing feelings in others. Let me say it again. You know that you are arguing and sinning when you are stirring up suspicion, distrust, doubt, and disturbing feelings in others. He writes, have you ever been, someone, been around someone like that? He says, we all have. And even when you try to resist being influenced by such negativism, we find it rubbing off all over us. How unfair, he writes, to pass around the poison of pessimism. But it happens every day, and it steals a church's joy. It creates an atmosphere of wholesale negativism. I love this. Where nothing but the bad side of everything is emphasized. It's enough to make you scream, he writes. Amen. God says, see for church... Do not break unity. Walk in the power of the Holy Spirit as evidenced by not grumbling or complaining. Why? Because your life is not just about you. It's about all of us. See, most of us think that when the Holy Spirit will come in great power on our church, we're all going to break out like we did in the spiritual gifts conversation. Everything's going to tongues and prophecy. and Sure, all that's fine. But what did we learn in the spiritual gifts here? What's the most important thing? Character. Character. Paul ties the work of the Holy Spirit and walking out our salvation in fear and trembling without, with the idea that we don't grumble and argue in the local church. Why? Because he understood, not just sociologically, he understood environmentally, spiritually, that churches will fragment and die. You can be in a church of 80 or 10,000. Size does not matter. But when this stuff comes, death is coming with it. I was watching uh, television this week, and uh, I saw this ad. I think it's from New York State. It was an anti-smoking ad, and um, it was interesting. It was a a very well-done one where they had probably a 35-year-old woman sitting in a doctor's office. I wasn't really paying attention, but it caught me. And the doctor says, I'm sorry, you have lung cancer. And, you know, the, the, the way they frame it, and it's intense. And then the commentator says, but this is not the most difficult conversation she's going to have. It's when she has to go home and tell her kids. And it pans, of course, to this 35-year-old woman with you know, a 5-year-old and a 7-year-old looking at them and saying, so what do I do? And the point was, very strikingly, smoking isn't just about you. It hurts everyone. And when I saw that, I went, that's exactly what Paul is driving home. When you grumble and you argue in a local church, it's just like smoking. There's secondhand smoke everywhere, it produces cancer, and eventually it will always bring breakup or death. And Paul says to all of us, I do not want you, and you do not have to be this way. He says, so walk in salvation with fear and trembling. Do not grumble, do not argue. Why? Verse 15. So you may become blameless, pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky. He's saying this. You know what? You want to be really different in a pagan culture? You really want to be Jesus people for real? Don't grumble and don't argue, and everyone will see it in seconds. You don't believe me? Go online this week. Go online anytime. Watch television. What are some of the highest rated shows these days? It's all about arguing and grumbling, gossiping and backbiting. The Bachelor. We love it. You shouldn't. Sorry, honey. (laughs) And all her friends. And the whole young adult community tonight. Now, my point is, we love this stuff. Here's a few things. Blameless, 
pure, without fault, shining like the stars. Blameless means we're, we're not hypocritical. Pure means this, we're inexperienced in evil. Think about that. Who's inexperienced with evil anymore? You just say, I don't know, I've never done that. People are like, what? I don't know. Without fault was the description used for lambs in the Old Testament that were about to be given to God. They could not have any blemish. And actually shining like the stars, of course, means luminaries. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but when you go north, I mean, get out of the city, like really far north, because we have so much light pollution here. You go really north, um, you know, to Bancroft. No, I'm joking. You go farther. Uh, you go north like, like Algonquin or farther north than that. And you actually sit and you see the stars. You know what I'm talking about? And how bright they are and how vibrant they are. Or, you know, when you look at the sun, and you shouldn't, but you do. <laughs> Paul says, that's the example and that's the experience people should have with you. Because as it gets darker in culture, it's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. Because lines are drawn. And not only are lines drawn, you get to shine properly. He says, you're going to shine like the stars among them. And then he says this, as you hold out the word of life. Now, please, if you're disconnecting now, come right back. Paul ties all this together at this moment. And please hear this. Paul says right now, why unity? Why all of this? Why following Jesus' example? Why being changed by the Holy Spirit? Why living like Jesus is really coming back? Why fear and trembling? And he brings it home to a place that is so lost in the church. He says evangelism. Our unity is connected to talking to others about Jesus. As Christians, when we give out the gospel, we are holding life and death in our hands. That is eternal life through Jesus Christ. We are holding out forgiveness of sin, restoration between God and those we're talking to. We hold out the removal of God's wrath. We hold out the holiness of God and the love of God. We're holding out the option for people like us to have relationship with God and not be eternally alienated and separated from God and every other human being forever. We hold out the word of life. You say, well, what's the point? Here it is. As one said, our corporate behavior, especially when it comes to relating to one another, goes a long way in determining how effective, how we will hold out the word of life. Thus, evangelism for Paul is the bottom line. Evangelism is so key, but internal bickering among God's people is a thoroughly counterproductive activity which will lessen or shut down our evangelism. No one thinks when they're arguing with another Christian or grumbling that it not only affects the rest of us, most of us never think it could actually stop people from coming to Jesus. But Paul's point is absolutely it could. And he says, and then I will be able to boast in the day of Christ that I did not labor in vain. Paul understood something as a church leader. When he dies, he's going to face Christ and he's going to give an account for what he has done in those people's lives. And he says, do not make everything I've done and fought for and prayed for lost on judgment day. He says 
even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering and sacrifices and service coming from faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. A drink offering was an above and beyond offering in Numbers 15. It was a beautiful thing, and it's used for dying for Christ. He says, even though I may even die for Christ, I have great rejoicing with you. So he says in verse 18, so you too should be joyful or glad and rejoice with me. You have joy. I have joy. The gospel's going forward. We have joy because the good news is going out. So let's do this. But again, I just want to end with these words before I get to the application. As one said, neither plastic joy or trumped up suffering will do for Paul. Suffering for Paul is ultimately a theological matter. It has to do with our relationship with Christ, our unyielding commitment to the gospel in a present dark pagan world, which is neither a friend of grace nor sympathetic to our confession as Christians that Jesus is the only Lord. Suffering for its own sake will not do for Paul. And suffering because we're right and the less the world be damned has nothing to do either with our mentality. The joy comes from our relationship with Christ and one another in Christ as well as our certainty that he's coming back and we have hope. Suffering then must be a direct result of trying, ready, to bring other people in on the joy or it takes away from Jesus' suffering. Only so then we can rejoice in other suffering as evidence as sacrifices before God. In other words, he's saying rejoice because when you suffer and I'm suffering because we're trying to get people into the kingdom, that is a beautiful sacrifice before God. But don't you dare taint that sacrifice by your grumbling and your arguing. So here's the question. Scripture is clear. What do we do with it? What would Jesus say to us through his word today? Well, here it is. C4 Church, Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. This has been a long time since this has probably been preached here. And really it drives home a deeper question. What Jesus do you think you really know? Who do you think you're going to meet at the end of time and give an account to? And does it ever affect how you live? Knowing that we do not need to earn our salvation, knowing that we've been given the Holy Spirit, knowing that we have the Holy Scriptures, knowing that we have community, Paul would say, get moving in our faith. If our whole universe someday is going to pay homage to their Lord, then let's get on with joyful, trust-filled obedience. Why? Because we know him. This is what's going to happen. We are going to meet him one day and give an account to the risen one, the powerful one, Jesus the Christ. You know, it was John, Jesus' best friend on earth, the closest to him, when in the book of Revelation encountered Jesus in his risen state, who also fell down like he was dead, because though he was even closest to Jesus, when he encountered the risen Christ, everything changed. Hear, Hear the description this morning on this wintry day of who we're going to really give an account to, who's among us by his spirit right now, who's very concerned about his word going forth, who's very concerned about argumentation and grumbling. Revelation 1.12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was like white like wool, white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
And he placed his hand on me and says, do not be afraid. I am the first, I am the last, I am the living when I was dead. Now look, I'm alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. That is the Jesus we worship in this church. That is the Jesus we will give an account to of how we think, how we act, how we treat each other, and how we give out the word of life. We are not meeting some wussy Jesus at the end of time. We're meeting him. And the question is, will you welcome him into your life? Would you dare ask our master to give you not ungodly fear or terror, but holy fear, the gift of trembling, to live before Jesus with fear and trembling and understanding he still loves you so passionately and deeply and he's for you? I mean, the real question is this, oh Jesus, risen one. Oh Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Oh Jesus, conqueror of sin and Satan and death. Oh high and lifted up one. Oh Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, Messiah. Would you not come among us and help us really understand we will give an account? It's in 2 Corinthians 5.8, one of the verses that we were given two years ago as we've been praying for revival. As some of you saw last night, as stories began to be shared publicly. One of the elements of the coming move of God among of us is this. 1 Corinthians 5 and 8, we are confident, I'd say, I'd prefer to be away from the body, at home with the Lord, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ as Christians, that we each may receive what is due in us, the things done in the body, whether good or bad. You ask what the application is? Here's the beginning. No more church. No more plastic Christianity. Fear and trembling in the right sense. But we need to ask Jesus to help us with this because many of us who've been longtime Christians still don't actually let this sink in or we don't know how. Paul says, walk out your salvation in fear and trembling. And then he says, how do you do it? Here it is. Do not grumble and do not argue. That is a living sign that Jesus' lordship is growing in your personal life and the lordship of Jesus is growing in this local church. What's grumbling again? Let me remind you. It's not loud. It's not boisterous. It's low-tone muttering. It's negative. It's muted comments. It's complaining. It's whining. Is that you? Repent. Repent. That's not freedom. I'm not angry at you as a pastor. I'm just telling you, please, there's no joy with that. I don't want you to live like that the rest of your life. Do you? What about argumentation? If you are a person in this church, publicly or privately, that stirs up, not disagreement, but suspicion, distrust, if you are a perpetuator of doubt by your words or your body language, guess what? Repent. Because you do not fear and you do not tremble before the Lord who owns this church. All of us must come to the place where we say to Jesus, is this me? Would you set me free? And then say this, I want joy to replace this. And this is why it ends. Why this whole conversation today? It's simple. Why did Jesus humble himself? That's the Paul example he uses. Why was Paul in chains? Why does Paul cry out for church unity? To see selfish ambition, vain conceit, grumbling and arguing, systematically removed from us like a terminal cancer. Why? The lost. He really loved the lost people. For God so loved the world. As Swindoll so brilliantly wrote, there's no need to shout, no need to scream, no need to make a scene, just shine, live a life free of grumbling and disputing, and the difference will jolt them awake. 
Have you ever considered that how you do church and how you do this among us affects the gospel we're trying to hand out? Paul says to us through the Holy Scriptures, God says to us through the Holy Scriptures, walk in fear and trembling. Don't grumble or argue and hold out the word of life. Give out the gospel because that is why Jesus came. That's why I'm in chains, he would say. That is why I'm commanding you as a church to be unified because as you give the gospel out, people will see that you are different. Why? Because you will do countercultural things. You will live in an upside down way that makes no sense, but it will be deeply attractive because when light shines in darkness, you cannot help but look at light. Paul comes, Scripture comes, God comes and says, See for church, you need to move. It's a painful move. But the end result is a great new home full of joy, freedom, where many more people come and get to eat with the one who gave you joy in the first place. So, Dan can come up. We're going to respond, I think. We're going to do communion. And I think we just need to take a moment because this is one of these passages that, wow, it's a difficult one. So let, let me pray. Let's see what the Lord does among all of us. So Jesus, thanks for your word. Uh, and though it's been given, uh, the question is now what to do with it. So I pray that you would work this out in me, in all of us. Like really, Lord, work it out in all of us. I mean, uh, help us. First of all, live with fear and trembling. I, I would ask this. I pray that you would help me in this church to live as you've commanded, that to really live like Jesus is returning. I pray that you would now, Holy Spirit, uh, would convict you, no one else. You would convict any person who is a grumbler or a, a complainer or arguer among us, and I pray you'd set them free. I pray for our church unity, and not only do I pray that, I pray that there would be a strengthening in this church as we hold out the word of life, and I pray we'd hold it out more. Do what you need to do among us, Lord. We're praying. Do anything you need for your glory, our freedom, so the world sees Jesus clearly. We're praying for a revival, and revival at the heart of a move of God is about how we change in our everyday life. And so come, Jesus, make us Christians in the purest sense that we'll shine like stars. And I also pray, too, you'd bless the elements as we prepare to take them and that you would meet us as we take communion. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. We're going to do past communion today, and uh, Dan's going to lead us in some songs. just want to say this. If you're a Christian, you're welcome to take this. Um, the only conditions about not taking communion in Scripture is if you're not a Christian yet, don't take it. You've not embraced the one it represents. If you're a Christian and you're outright rebelling against God, uh, don't take it because you're not embracing his work in your life. But for all of us who are doing well or struggling, you're welcome to come and take this. And again, it's the symbol of his death and his resurrection. It's the very thing that Paul uses to give us the example for how we're supposed to treat each other. So as you take communion today, take a moment, confess sins, pray for the church, pray for our unity, and ask Jesus to make you like him because that's the essence of this. So uh, the Lord bless you and the ushers can come forward and bring it at any time and you can take it when you're ready. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, carotherscreek.ca.